Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Welcome to episode 49, recorded on December 16th, 2022. Sias Tarani is the Chief Digital Officer and Director of Innovation for the City of Hamilton, Ontario. And he heads up a department that is tasked with planning and weaving together a complex web of needs and projects designed to turn Hamilton into a smarter, greener city. This is a fascinating conversation. First, though, Grant has his tech news. Okay, Grant, I know you've been surfing the web on your little Chromebook. What have you got for us this time? Well, I've got a whole mix of stuff, and I think it's a good, diverse uh, session we're going to have here, um, Alan. Uh, One thing we all talk about is electric cars, EV, and all that stuff, and we constantly talk about it on on our news. And I... um, you might have seen it already, but um, I posted stuff like these little cars are going to be fully solar because they're smaller and the whole top. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I'm going to wonder if that'll fly. But a new one that I've been reading about actually quite a while ago when it was first, the idea first came up, but a Spanish company has just introduced a car that you can shrink in size. And so basically it's a foldable car. So essentially, you and I get in the car, we drive around, but then we, when we're going to park anywhere, we get out and it folds to about almost half, two-thirds its size. So it may be two meters by four meters and then be shrunk down to one meter by three meters. And it just shrinks in, you open the front, you get out. And so your parking spaces are half the size. You can park just like you're parking EV scooters and so on. And from my standpoint, um, and they want to have cars out by next year. Um, it's always the same old thing. It's um, a matter of funding. But it's essentially, it's like parking a couple of motorcycles next to each other. Mm-hmm. Wow. And obviously, this would be for high-density cities. And well, think of it, Alan. I mean, yeah. I mean, shared mobility as well. Um, when you mm-hmm. do yeah, share I was about to say, now, yeah. Yeah, it's usually scooters and bikes. Uh, and sometimes you'll get three cars in a garage, share, but that's a lot of space, right? Yeah. Where I think this is the perfect. I'm on holiday. I'm here. I want I want something for a day. I want to be able to park it. I want to be able to go anywhere. Heck, you go down a sidewalk in it. So I think it was, uh, I think it's pretty cool. And um, they're only waiting for, um, for funding. And I think that uh, we may see that within the next two years because I, I don't see how I, – I, I could be wrong, but I, I believe this was even developed and worked on even at places like MIT 10 years ago. You know, everyone was working on this foldable idea to make a smaller vehicle that's bigger. It makes sense, right? We have the foldable bike, the foldable this. And so when I saw that uh, they had one done um, – so this company's out of Spain – so obviously Europe always has the first need. So I'm, I'm going to watch it very closely and, and see if it comes to North America. Well, it makes a lot of sense because the cabin of a car is a bunch of empty space, right? And if you could you somehow collapse that, you got it. then you could, uh, you know, decrease the entire footprint of the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I view it as it's, it's going to happen. Um, and it just all fits into this future of uh, 
of mobility. And, um, you know, I'm a car guy. You know that. I love to have cars. But at the same time, I get it. I get it. it and by the way, it'll be cost effective. So everyone will be able to afford one. That's the other thing we forget, right? I mean, you're probably talking an $8,000, $10,000 vehicle that everyone can afford. And that's great. And then fold it up and put it uh, off to the side on your on your porch. It's just unbelievable. So okay. I, I'm looking forward to see what they do. I don't know. Um, like I said, they want it out next year. And so we'll see. If, I'm going to watch them closely. Hey, you know, see when the funding comes out and so on. So, yeah, so that's that one. Um, so now we go to a different thing that we've, we always talk about. Uh, major roadways, expressways, railways, metro stations, you know. You know, it, it's funny. I, I keep watching because I'm home a lot. Uh, I work a lot from home. I'm, I watch a lot of YouTube and stories, and I watch a lot on crime. And 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 you you hear about these really bad crimes of whether it's robbing a store or murders, and they got no cameras. And people go, "Oh, I don't want cameras." Well, you know what? I don't think that's the choice anymore. And the I don't know if you know this, but the Uttar um, Pradesh government. Um, has installed on their own, invested over 5,000 cameras throughout 16 cities in every major area. And it was not done, even though it's going to give you better efficiency, of course. It's going to move people around to the better places, help with the roadways, the railways, and metro stations. But truly, it's to create a safe environment. They want to be able to respond and help people, make sure they don't go places they shouldn't go, watch crime, and be vigilant about things. And um, I think that when someone says, as a, as a district, we're doing all these 16 cities, I don't believe that's an exception. I think that's a norm. Well, I did some traveling recently in, in, in Asia, and the number of times my image was captured, whether I was posing for a picture, so they got a picture of my face, yeah. Or I was under some kind of, we'll call it surveillance. In high traffic areas where the potential for crime, accidents, um, you know, various incidents that might require uh, first responders, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I, I looked around, I thought, wow, you know, this, this is cool, but it, it won't fly in certain parts of the world. I can just imagine. I, I know. But you know what, Alan? It always never flies until it happens to you. Oh, I got robbed or beat up in front of my house, or someone stole my nicest car in the parking garage. How come no one caught it? You why know what? I'll, I'll, I'll do that one even one even better. Okay, uh, okay. While I was a while I was away, my neighbor's car was stolen out of his driveway. My next door neighbor and yeah, uh, we were we were able to you know with our personal cameras that we have Absolutely. our personal security cameras. Absolutely. We were able to determine a little bit about the time and nature of the theft. We never got the, well, we knew what the license plate was, but that's all we got. We never saw, saw any faces, but uh, it, it was something that gave the police a lead. And, and, you know, in, in the greater Toronto area, uh, the number of car thefts is off the charts right oh. now. Well, I, well, hold on. So I published uh, an article uh, on LinkedIn Last week, there are over 500 car thefts last month, month in Mississauga. Yes. Okay. I saw so, that. well, Alan, so, you know, I had over 4,000 responses. 
So obviously it's a major issue. Now, of those, I started reading through them. Almost half the places had no CCTV. Well, mm. there's two things about CCTV. One is it deters, okay? When people are going to choose you last if, if they have cameras covering the whole area, okay? Versus they also, that's deterrent safe. They also help. If I need to track down someone that's in a car ring, which, as you know, our company found a car ring and stolen cars in Toronto through our LPR system. That's helpful. That saves people not just, uh, not, not in that instance, but when they go to the next place and do the next one. And I get that people don't like it, but I got to tell you, Alan, the more I look at this, the more I'm going, hell, I'm going to choose safety now. I'm just going to choose safety. I want to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. I want my friends to be safe. And so I know the issue of big, you know, everyone overlooking your back and we'll call it big daddy, whatever. But you know what? I, it's there anyhow. So why don't we figure out how to manage it and make it work for us? What else you got? Okay. Um, I've got a really cool one that, and then I'm going to just stop, finish off with a quick uh, discussion. So I got four things today, but it's only a quick one. But the third one's kind of cool because... Um, as you know, um, we have these blogs all over the place, Smart City Blog for Hamilton, Smart City Blog, we call it Blog Toronto. So I'm sitting here and I'm watching a blog Toronto on where I live. And it's talking about the very first, the very first diamond interchange in Ontario. I and saw that, yes. And, I'm, yes. and I'm so, well, I want to tell you something and I want to say it on the show. So I have to take that all the time. Of course, it was shut down for a while. That really peeved me off. But um, so when it was finished, oh, no, I couldn't go good. I went, this is stupid. Like, I'm crisscrossing and, man, is this ever dumb? And then I started using saying, holy cow, this is pretty cool. And then I thought, I like this. And then I read it and thought, why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because they don't want left-hand turns out. So think of going over a freeway and you might have to turn left to go into a ramp or turn left and the other way to go here. There are no left-hand turns. The traffic's always flowing both ways. And you always turn to the right. And I thought, I did, yeah. Um, I, I read somewhere. No, this is not technology, Alan. No, no, no. This is but innovation. It, it, innovation. It is innovation. Yeah. I read somewhere that UPS drivers are under some kind of, please, if anybody knows the answer to this, let me know. But I heard that UPS drivers are prohibited from turning left. Well, maybe they are, because look at how they have to look at things. And yeah. you can't see the right-hand side when they turn. But at first, I joked about it. Like, you know me, Mr. Sarcastic. Mm -hmm. I'm driving, look at it. I mean, there's these roads going all over the place. What the heck? And then when the lights were all put in and everything worked, I'm going, this is pretty good. And then I read about it yesterday. So I think that the reason I bring this up is technology, it's not always about developing new technology, has smart city application. It's innovation. So a group of transportation engineers got together and said, hey, we're going to solve your, 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 your problem. I remember there's the, the biggest um, outlet malls there as well. So you can imagine the, the lineups going over that bridge to cut on the highways. Sure. And so what they did is they eliminated that um, by putting this in. And, and I will tell you, Alan, it works. 
And I didn't think much of it at the time. So I think, I think that's important. I think you're going to, oh, by the way, you're going to see a lot of these. It's a beta for Ontario. So um, we, we, the old ones, we called them, um, you know, the, 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 the circles, right? Where you go around and you turn off. The, the, the roundabouts. Yeah. yeah. And this is kind of a diamond shaped roundabout. Okay. And finally, you have this. Yes. Um, okay. We have to talk about it. Okay. Because you know, and I know it's hyped up big. It's called fusion power. Yes. Um, it's the biggest thing discovered maybe in the last hundred years. Um, not discovered, working. So we know fusion power essentially uh, in a, a nutshell is slamming atoms into each other, which releases energy. Because the core of uh, nuclear power and energy, right, it's, it creates that solar effect, which forms fusion power. And so, um, and by fusion, the reason they want to do it, there's zero carbon source, right, in the grid. Yeah, so it's, basic, it's, basic, it's basically free, infinite energy. And no waste materials. Um, yes. So the, the appeal is clear. Um, however, um, we know since it was first uh, thought of in 1917 or something, whatever, I don't know, long time ago, okay? Um, no one knew what it was really going to be about. And then he made it work, what, last week or the week after in a lab. They actually didn't, they tested it and they got it so it would work. And my feeling is, Alan, um, even though we're probably 25 years away from it being a reality, because as you know, you need these expensive lasers to, to make it work, but they'll fix that. Um, I believe, and I'll say it today, this will be one of the biggest things that ever happens in our, in, in our world. I totally agree. Uh, for the first time ever, the amount of energy coming out was more than the amount of energy going in. The amount of energy coming out would boil a couple of kettles, and it only happened for as long as you can blink an eye. Correct. But the fact is that they made it work finally it's after years. And I years, years, know years. the sun is powered by nuclear fusion. Yes. And so that's all they're trying to do, and and that's how they learned about it. So um, it's a, a, a form of probably indirect fusion power, but um, it's big, and I want to talk about it because – It'll for all these people who want to save the world, Alan. This is it. It is, and and we've been talking about the the prospect of fusion for a very long time. Um, we're like we're not months, we're not years, we're a couple of decades away from something. But this is a landmark experiment that is a viable proof of concept. Yep. Now here is a grand title. Chief Digital Officer and Director of Innovation for the City of Hamilton. That's the job of Tyrus Tarani. His department works with all the other departments across the city to help introduce smart city technology. And this is happening in areas that you might not expect. This is a massive job and one that requires a tremendous amount of vision. We caught up with Cyrus in his office. So... Your official title is the Chief Digital Officer and Director of Innovation for the City of Hamilton. How old is that particular position? It sounds really 21st century. Well, I've been in the role about three and a half years, Alan, and I think it, uh, it, prior to me, it was around for about uh, a year before that. And I think it was really um, 
a way for the city to try to bring in a new role, and I, I would admit that maybe they really didn't know what to call it at the time, to kind of capture sort of a portfolio that maybe didn't belong in some of the other traditional silos of what a municipality has in terms of the org structure. My father was the mayor of a small town, and uh, we had a dog catcher, we had a garbage collector, and then we had a guy that looked after sewer and water. So this is <laughs> this is a lot different. Things. So are you doing that used- now? Are you doing that now? Uh, no, I yeah. have oh, no. Okay, yeah. yeah, no, no connection to any of that. So what? It, with as a chief digital officer and director of innovation, what exactly do you do? Yeah, so I have a. I call it. I call it a eclectic portfolio. But I have things like our our broadband and digital equity portfolio. I have our smart cities portfolio. I have a program called City Lab, which is a partnership with McMaster, Mohawk, uh, and other post secondary institutions where we bring up projects through the city. And I have our strategic partnerships where we look at doing things like uh, our city survey. We have some municipal benchmarking data. I also own Open Data. And then I also try to bring in, you know, technology innovation and pilots uh, to the city, whether they be sort of under that smart cities or connected communities portfolio. Um, And it's a really small group. It's myself and a senior project manager uh, and some of the other areas have a few staff. Uh, But it's kind of that collecting those pieces and creating a a doorway into the city uh, as well for community partners. Uh, We do things like working with McMaster and and, and Mohawk. I have a smart cities working group. I chair a mobility innovation working group internally within the city. Um, And I don't have, you know, web services or or IT, which maybe traditionally fall under some of these roles, uh, but it allows for some flexibility in terms of trying to bring in things or pilot things with the city that maybe wouldn't have a home anywhere else. This is interesting because Hamilton traditionally is known as a steel city. Uh, we see the mills from the highway, but uh, the steel industry has been way down on the list of employment uh, employers for a very long time. Health services is way up high on the list uh, and also uh, education and information technology. So this makes sense that your your position would actually exist. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you alluded to the, the evolution that's happening in, in Hamilton, right? So there's that optics perception of what you see and not that you know, steel and advanced manufacturing are really important to our economy, but it's really become diversified. So we're seeing that shift away from maybe traditional heavy industries. Like you said, our top employers are healthcare and education. We have a really robust health sciences uh, industry. And then we also have sort of our our goods movement. We have a creative industries uh, area that's coming up, you know, um, even in terms of, of tourism and, and culture and, and food, uh, it's like we have kind of a one-stop shop for all these areas. We have, you know, one of the busiest ports uh, on the Great Lakes. We have the busiest cargo airport uh, in Canada. We have McMaster, Mohawk, some of the, you know, recognized in, in the areas, both for a research at a, a pl- applied and academic level between McMaster uh, and, and Mohawk. And we have a very diversified economy that's growing out of what was once a very industrialized uh, focused uh, economy because of where we were positioned uh, for, with regards to our transportation networks. And I would imagine that you have your fingers in just about every one of those pies. We try to bring together, uh, you know, collaboration. For example, I'll give you one example. We're working with, we are a regional um, technology site for OVEN, Ontario Vehicle Innovation Network, that focuses on 
um, connectivity. So we have a research R&D bed that's a 5G and a 4G network and some equipment that's mounted on poles right on one of our streets uh, where we can collect data. And that's sent back to a central data repository that's managed by the Centre for Integrated Transportation uh, and Mobility uh, that sits within our regional innovation centre. Uh, we have some some of that network that also resides on private property. We're setting up some things to do around uh, test intersections where set up traffic control systems that can be used for research purposes on private uh, through the McMaster um, program there and the Center for Integrated Transportation Mobility, McMaster Institute for Transportation and Logistics. So there's a lot of partnerships that we try to uh, develop. We're doing some work around IoT sensors right now. So we're working with a company, a Canadian company out of uh, Nova Scotia, and we we have a we have a challenge in Hamilton, for example, is that we have a port right in the middle of our city, and you know from a greenhouse gas perspective and also efficiency, the fastest way for these vehicles to get to uh, the transportation network is sometimes through the city. So we've uh, working with a company that has IoT sensors that literally plug in to the socket on our light fixture. So our light fixtures all have, you know, the standard six pin connector with power there, pull that out, put on a microphone. In this case, we're gonna look at sound levels uh, across our transportation route. And then we're working with a startup company that's based out of McMaster Innovation Park that does mobile uh, environmental sensing. So they're gonna be driving our, our current state truck route and our future straight route state truck route and we'll be able to see the difference both ideally if it works out right some sometimes you try innovation and it fails but hopefully we'll be able to see some benchmarking around what our environmental impact was on the the existing truck route and the sound levels and then what would that look like as we've changed the truck route um, to divert traffic more directly to the um, the transportation routes around the city all right let me let me jump on that right right there because i remember before the red hill valley expressway and all the trucks coming down Highway 20. Yep. And that was an absolute nightmare in terms of traffic. It was noisy. Uh, the emissions were terrible. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you would look at in, in your department? So I, I help facilitate that. So in my case, it was finding the, the technology and saying, hey, you know, transportation operations maintenance group or, or tra and our transportation planning group. Do you have a use for this? So I came across the technology not having the defined use case and saying, hey, this sounds like a cool technology because, again, from a cost of deployment, from a simplicity, simplicity perspective, you're not running all this infrastructure in the ground to connect IoT sensors. You're just plugging them into an existing fixture. I would then go out and that's really what I did is I kind of knocked on doors within the city and said, hey, can you use this? And then we had two groups that stood up and said, yeah, we'd be interested in trying this out. Um, let's give it a, sh a, sh a go. And it's a pilot. It's a 12-month pilot. It's very low uh, low risk for us. And we learn from it. And if it, it works, great. If it doesn't, we're still going to learn something no matter what. And maybe we find a new use case scenario or the scenario works great. So Cyrus, I mean, it would assume that the first ventures you're looking at is ones that are more agnostic. So that, um, because if you get into a situation where it's a very custom application, then there's a very high cost to, um, to even beta. So you're looking at companies that have that open platform that can work with the infrastructure you have. And if you need infrastructure, your budget may come out of partners like McMaster or so on. 
Yeah, we did. We did this. We did a technology pilot with a, a local, another local Canadian company that does AI image recognition, and they needed a partner from a city perspective to be able to apply for a grant. So we put up our hand and said, "Hey, we'll be that partner." We didn't. We just had in-kind contributions. So from a procurement, there was no sure. dollar exchange, but the project was worth a hundred thousand dollars. But then they worked with our. Uh, our waste group, for example, and they developed uh, image recognition to be able to quantify, you know, waste at the side of the road as the, as the garbage trucks are going uh, by it, whether yeah. there's green bins yeah. out or recycling bins or the size of the number of garbage bags that were, were put out. So, again, low cost of friction because we're not looking for a unique application to solve a specific problem. We're managing it within sort of our our flexibility that we have within procurement or we're not going out for a large scale public sector procurement. And sometimes it's just being that partner to put your hand up and say, hey, let's give this a, a shot and see where it goes. Now, do you see that the future? Um, because you see, like we saw what happened with Sidewalk Labs in Toronto where they just departed. Um, and now they're up to tender again for new partners. And, and I get all that. Um, but within the city, um, you're not about to hire a whole IT or development department. You're not going to hire a group of programmers because then you become a technology company. And I don't think that's what the city wants to be. Yeah, we, we really struggle with that. Like being a development shop is just not, I think, viable for a lot of municipalities, right? First of all, you have people that the mobility of the workforce in the technology field now is is not so if you get someone who builds it right they they go on to greener pastures win the lottery whatever then you're stuck with legacy custom applications that maybe not everybody knows how to develop further um so in some ways even though it'd be nice to have that skill set i don't know how realistic it is so we do end up looking for maybe more agnostic off-the-shelf solutions that can meet a wide variety of solutions. And also there's there's a double-edged sword to that in that we can't move as quickly as someone who could just say, oh, I have a money I can and hire, you know, we're going to have it if we're a coding shop, develop it and maintain it. And less R&D. I mean, oh, well, well, guess what? We can do that already and apply it to your need. And, and you know, I've seen so many, not cities as much, um, even private businesses like it could be a real estate company says, you know what? We're going to own a technology for our buildings. And then they realize after they do it, oh, you have to get more than our buildings to sustain a company. Oh, that doesn't work. I need 10 programmers. And now I need other business. And all of a sudden, you have a new business unit that ends up being sold. Because it's just like a technology company shouldn't be investing in running uh, real estate companies and so on. And when you get that merge, people don't understand the importance of IP and, and development and the tasks and the investment that you have to make to keep on top of things in today's world. Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. Like even if something is, I'll take it down to even a simpler level, like an app. Everyone's like, oh, we should get an app for that, get an app for that. But then they, you got to manage the app. you got to have someone who can do it. And every time Android or iOS issue a, a software revision, you got to do testing, new development, make sure it's compatible. You know, I would point to a mobile optimized web page where you can access it from any browser that's connected to the internet, the maintenance on that is going to be a lot less than an You might not get some of the native app functionality, but from a cost perspective, yeah, long-term development cycle and support, it's definitely a lot easier. And you could argue you still get majority of the functionality through, you know, a phone. So let's, let's just back up a little bit. What is the overall goal in your department at the city 
regarding its transformation into the digital world. Yeah. What's the vision? Yeah. What's your vision? My vision anyways, hopefully I can, you know, push that out throughout the organization is that slowly we want to enhance the number of services that are available for people to, to access and make that experience, uh, you know, trusted for the citizen to engage in that service. But also as a city, right, we're really conscious of, you know, the whole the EDI lens, accessibility lens, where we can't go all digital. Like that's not a reality for a city. So if I want to come into the city and interact with the service, I should be able to do it. If I want to phone somebody because I'm at home or I'm a senior, I need support with other language uh, to interact with the service, I need to be able to do that. If I can use the web um, and I have access to the internet um, and I'm comfortable in in that method, I should be able to use that service. So that's everything, the whole gamut of saying, hey, let's take, you know, a PDF form that has a lot of friction to using it. We're not going to get rid of the 300 that we have off the bat, but maybe we can make them easier to use. And then the next step will be like, well, can we make that an online thing where you can access it without PDF? And the next is how can you integrate that into your CRM solutions so that there's full visibility into where people are? And then the next stage is integrating that into maybe some of your backend legacy solutions. Because as a tier one municipality, we we deliver everything from golf courses to sewers to water to parks to recreation. I would say that cities, especially tier one cities and even tier twos and regions, the number of services, like the citizens don't understand how complex it is to manage a city with those number of services. Most businesses don't have that many service lines. So everything from how do I find the cemetery plot of somebody uh, at a cemetery to, you know, how do I pay my bill? How do I pay my parking ticket? How do I get my tax bill? How can we slowly over time make those services start to look and feel like a unified experience, even if they're maybe you know, over time, they're still going to have to plug into a, a legacy solution in the back end because there isn't one one magic solution to rule them all, so to speak, from a, a municipal services perspective, if that makes sense. And, and the amount of human support required for all those different things must be incredible. And then you have to integrate them. That's where that's where automation comes in and, and applications. Well, you still need somebody. You still need somebody to answer the phones. You still mm-hmm. need somebody to to maybe look at look at a physical PDF copy. Of something. Yeah, it's complex. You know, we have currently, I think we have, you know, 13 enterprise asset management solutions. So one of the big projects is looking at combining all those into to one platform. So there's consistency in data. And then now think about trying to integrate something like a, a request that has to go to maybe our public works group. You know, you're going through a single integration rather than trying to do it. Oh, well, if it's a light like if it's a light that's out, it goes here. If it's a pothole, it goes here. If it's some, you know, a water main break, it goes here. It'll be able to uh, funnel those things through sort of one common interface. We're not even maintaining as many interfaces, and there should result in in more efficient operations, more visibility to data. Um, and oftentimes, I'm going to admit, I'm I'm not the person running that. I'm the cheerleader, kind of going, "Yes, you got to do this. This is awesome." And how can we make sure there's that visibility across the different groups to say, "Okay, you know what? Maybe you need to pause because I know you want to deliver this service, but if you can wait just a little bit longer, we'll be able to do it sort of in an enterprise fashion rather than a, a single stand-up." So, do you have a checklist like? Do you have a check? Do you have like, do you get reports or you have like weekly meetings? How do you get the needs of the city? Like, cause that's what you're drawing on. 
it's more like a social application, making sure everyone is getting what they need to make their operation synergistic. Yeah. Right now, it's probably more smaller steps than that. It sounds good on the grand scheme of, of the vision. So often it's, for example, you know, we were really interested in doing engagement. So a group had done some research on, um, you know, online engagement tools. So I came in and helped, you know, just on the procurement side to say, okay, let's, how do we get this brought in? And now we have an engagement platform. It's probably not unique. There's other municipalities that have online engagement platforms, but we've, you know, the number of interactions and projects that we've been able to launch and get feedback is through one step. So that's public engagement. Okay, let's find a, a piece that will work there for the whole organization. Next, it might be something as simple as, um, you know, looking at uh, an online scheduling a appointment solution where we can use various use cases. So we had that for our vaccine rollout. You know, we, everybody kind of knows the whole response was just head down, make it happen as quickly as possible. People didn't have time to even put their uh, heads above water to breathe. You know, now that things slow down, we're like, okay, what do we want for a long-term solution that isn't just good for vaccine appointment bookings? Maybe it can be used to book, uh, you know, appointments for coming in to get business licenses. Maybe it can be used for coming in to schedule a uh, virtual appointment for, uh, you know, uh, building and plan review. You know, how do we find that piece of it? So it's it's kind of in little, little steps here and there. And some of it is just one-offs. Like we did a, a voice skill and virtual assistant. Um, so we had a back platform that did virtual assistance. We hadn't really launched it. So we worked internally. Somebody on my team had some skills and be able to build that. And they'd come from another department. It was just a fluke that they were in my group. They built a virtual assistant to support the municipal election where you could say, you know, where's my polling station? Where's the advanced polling station? Who are the candidates? What are the, the hours? Um, what identification do I need to bring? Um, and that was built as a, as a virtual agent chatbot. And then we worked with a local company to build voice skills, um, really small scale project, um, but it was specific. So you could now use your Alexa or say, hey, Google, where's my closest polling station? Um, so you didn't need to go to the web. You didn't need to call. Uh, and it was a way for us to test those technologies and see how they were adopted within a very confined use space of just supporting accessibility and information about the municipal uh, election. And, but we learned from that. So it's, it's neat. And now there's going to be probably a second one that gets launched. And we're not going to try to launch one that answers everything about the web page and the thousands of services we have, but maybe it makes sense to light up small little virtual agents or voice skills for specific things where we know we either get a high call volume or a lot of, you know, complex processes on the, on the web page to navigate. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. Doesn't your head hurt with all the things that you have to do? It's amazing, right? Like, you think he's got this big department the way, like this whole infrastructure, which he is doing. Yeah, no, I love it. Like I love technology and I'm always, you know, reading or, or following things online and seeing what some of the best practices, you have to be careful too, right? Like I even follow, I think, you know, where's the shiny ball? Oh, that's a neat technology. We should of explore course. that. Sure. But in the same token, yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to look back and go, hey, we also need to think about like basic stuff that we need to, uh, to work on and, and really trying to think of something that if we're going to 
deploy it, it's either a pilot that's time constrained with limited risk, right? Public sector, nobody hates, but everybody public dime. So you can't be, you're so risk averse at the risk of failure. So do something small, like even that IOT pilot that I mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's a zero cost pilot initially because we just want to test it out and it's having those discussions and, and doing things so you can, can figure out if it works or not. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love it. And, uh, you know, even in that whole smart cities realm, there's so much that's happening. It's almost makes your head spin, but sometimes it's trying to pick on the things that you can, you know, you have, I need operational owners, right? I can't go and say thou shalt do this. It's more like, how can I help you to do something that's mm. a problem for you? Uh, and then I'm also a cheerleader. Like recently our, our traffic, our transportation operations and maintenance group just, just released a, an app where you could go and see where your sidewalk snowplow has gone. I, I'm going to press. I had zero to do with it, but when I saw it, I was like, woohoo, this is awesome. This is the types of things that we want to be working on. And I can, um, you know, promote that as, as the innovation that's happening across the groups. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't come from my initial kickstart of any sign, but it's, it's moving the organization along and getting people to be comfortable with trying these things um, on the innovation and, and sort of service delivery model evolution. Okay. Let me ask this. Uh, when you introduce something or you make a modification to something, how do you get the word out to the general population of the city that this new service, this new ability now exists? Yeah, often we'll, we'll use sort of traditional methods. So we'll use our social, uh, social media accounts, our website. Like our web team has done an awesome job. They just redeveloped. Uh, we had a site that hadn't been redeveloped for, I think, eight years. They completely did a new site where it's easier to find information. They'll promote it. We have e-newsletters. Uh, and often we'll just go to uh, some sometimes traditional media as well. It might be a print ad in a, in a local community paper. It might be uh, a piece that appears online um, through a media partner. Um, for example, we're doing what's called our city survey. Again, nothing unique. Cities go and survey their residents all the time. Um, We happen to do ours every three years. So we use our engagement platform, which is our online tool, and we have the survey available there. We'll uh, put physical print ads in newspapers with a QR code where you can scan it to get to the survey. We'll do ads on, you know, we might use apps, like you go to the weather app and you'll see things about, you know, recycling tips or accessing our city survey in this case. We will make print copies available in the, uh, at the library. So if someone uh, doesn't have access to technology and they want to participate, right? There's the ability for the library to print it out uh, and give it to them. We'll work with partners to say, hey, can you retweet our social media around this particular thing? So uh, again, I'm not a comms expert. I kind of re- rely on the comms group for that and they do a great job, but it's about hitting multiple channels to try to get to your uh, audience. So, so I've always had this question. I've grown up in the Toronto area and I've known Hamilton my whole life. Um, so Hamilton's making this big, I believe is making a big uh, uh, construction of uh, being a smarter community. It's going to immerse itself in um, being more, uh, I would have to think uh, climate change is a big deal in, in Hamilton. Um, we know that it was in Toronto. Look at the Toronto waterfront 40 years ago. Um, and, and, and I would think that Hamilton should view itself as the, the next big prime community outside of Toronto, where you can offer all the services a tier one city can offer. So where's your link with 
the ports. I mean, they play a huge part in that in that bay. Um, the steel companies, the ports. Where's the city get involved in all that? And do they have influence on on where they're where they go with a smart city future of Hamilton? Yeah. I think, you know, the tagline in Hamilton is that everyone's one phone call away. We're small enough and agile enough that you can just, you know, I just toured the port for the first time uh, with the Hamilton Port Authority to learn about what they're doing. And they're doing some fantastic stuff where they want to be the greenest port uh, in the country. You know, they're talking about ideas of how do we, you know, maybe provide mobile power to ships that are in the harbor so that they don't have to um, use their diesel while they're waiting to be offloaded. Um, and again, maybe that's something down the road, but they have that sort of vision. You know, we're looking at um, AMD, ArcelorMittal de Fasco, right? They just got a $1.8 billion funded project where they're going to convert uh, their processes to electric and natural gas. I read that. It's and, amazing. Yeah, and get rid of, like, if you actually looked at, a, like, a satellite view, you see the coal fields uh, along the harbor. Um, those are going to yeah. be gone, and there's work required work required to bring in more electric electrical generation more natural gas but if you look at even the you talked about sort of our um, environmental profile hamilton has a weird profile in that industry is one of the largest contributors to ghg uh, this project don't call me if i have the exact number but it's basically going to reduce the ghgs from that industrial sector over 50% for this conversion wow. to, um, you know, greener steel production. And it makes, Nobody knows that. yeah, it makes AMD competitive, I think, in the delivery of low carbon steel going forward. But at the same token, there's a benefit because we're, we're building that technology and that can be, is, you know, being deployed in Hamilton. And, and likewise, we're going to see that environmental impact that impacts the entire city, uh, even on some of the byproducts that'll get eliminated from not using coal and the steel production. It's it's amazing. Like, you know, $1.8 billion investment sitting uh, across the harbor and going to be a technology that's, you know, industry leading globally. It's fantastic. You must be looking at other industrial cities, uh, Buffalo, Detroit, Pittsburgh. Uh, what are they doing that excite you? Yeah. So, you know, the whole Rust Belt uh, group and, and seeing what they're, we're doing, I think what we're really seeing is the need to diversify the economies that the cities survive on. You can't be that single source economy with one or two large employers. You really need to attract uh, a mix of em employment and, and sectors. You, you can't be, you can't do everything for everybody. So, you know, is, for example, is is the high tech sector something that's going to jump on board and all of a sudden, I think we have a good representation, you know, but, you know, we have entertainment, um, you know, film industry, we have goods movement, right? There's a natural synergies to be made between our rail, our, our logistics. airport, logistics, yeah. um, transportation, and then the other thing I'll add is like we're, we're trying to get a regional decarbonization hub sort of established where we can start to capture some of the work that's happening across all these different areas to, again, further sort of promote uh, the ability to show how we're, we're different. So the lessons from those other cities, I would say, is like looking how to diversify your economy, promote policies that bring in that mix so that you have both jobs that people want the education pathways for your education institutions that will support the future jobs 
that are, are going to be driving your economy. And then you have to have the amenities. You have to have the rec centers. You have to have the green spaces. You have to have the, the parkland. You have to have the mix of arts and entertainment. So bringing kind of pushing on all those key areas gives you that sort of evolution of your um, city um, to make it that a place where people want to come and grow and grow and uh, grow old and uh, gracefully sort of and, and grow, have their families here because you have that whole mix. Do you have a year as some kind of benchmark where you want to hit certain things like 2020, 2030, 2035, 2050? Well, what's the, what's the plan for the car, the decarbonization plan for the port? So the the AMD project specifically, it's going to go live. I think they're looking to go live in 2028. So it's not that far out, right? Okay. Um, yeah. That that's a biggie. Uh, the port again. I'm not in, intimately aware of some of their their plans. I just know they have that vision to to do that. Um, you know, even the airport I know is working on uh, SDGs and looking at how they can be more environmentally uh, sustainable. We recently just um, kind of elevated climate, I would say through, uh, we've just recently hired a new director of, of climate initiatives uh, to help kind of corral that on my front. You know, we're continuing to expand. We just, you know, we did a small project. We applied for a grant and we expanded some Wi-Fi to a few parks and we didn't say, oh, we're going to put one in this ward, one in this ward, one in this ward. We said, where are the socioeconomic um areas of the city that would benefit from maybe not being able to afford or have access to connectivity, let's find those parks and provision them uh, with Wi-Fi. So uh, even on the smart city side, Grant, I know I know you know this stuff. It's not so much about like the tech. It's not so much about the, the solutions. Um, you know, yeah, this idea of IoT and the dashboard of everything. It's more like, how do you make it better for your citizens or your businesses? Um, oh, and, I agree, by the way. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's one little thing at a time. It's not technology all the time. It could be just someone thought of a better way to handle something in a city that's a process. And it's just as good as a technology. And um, people forget about it's not always winning the award for develop the next new app. You know, it could be a whole process that's just as important. Um, but I look at, like, I bring it up only because I, I've watched it closely. Detroit, it has made probably the biggest uh, change in any any city in any in our in North America that it went from a very dependent industry more than anywhere probably uh, auto manufacturing and because of some very good technology people and some great uh, technology hubs that you're doing here they're managing to deform, trying to and managing to transform themselves into a multi tech multi uh, industry city which it's taken already 30 years it's not easy and um, so I look at that and saying well I would assume Hamptons doing the same thing they're coming from an industry that was very dependent no doubt um, have made the change years ago but do you see now the curve is much quicker yeah I, I think you know even if we look at building permit rates uh, for the city we have you know LRT, like LRT build for Hamilton is going to be fundamental. So think about redevelopment of 14 kilometers of a very old corridor through the heart of the city to make it both, you know, yeah, 
it's it's green in terms of you know it's electrification of that the number of buses that will take off that'll be replaced by the LRT but then what we can do about placemaking along the development of the of the LRT. We can do about connectivity for including housing along the corridor that makes it easy for people to live and get to work using that corridor. You know, the economic multipliers that will come in from development that'll occur along that core, as well as upgrades to infrastructure. You know, if, if there wasn't for an LRT project, guess what? The taxpayer, and it is a taxpayer, but I mean, the city would be looking at that refurbishment cycle, whereas now some of that refurbishment is occurring as part of the, the project it's, itself. So it's, it's really exciting. Have you started to work on electrification for EVs? Uh, do you have a plan? We are actually just uh, through our transportation planning group. There's uh, been some discussions as, as how do we launch that. So we have EV vehicles, we have EV chargers. Uh, we've I forget the exact number that we've deployed uh, on a city basis through some of the funding through uh, Ministry of Natural Resources. But we're actually on the work plan is a unified EV strategy for that's the city. I, yeah, that's what I want. Uh, because it's it's not also just about like hey where do we put EV chargers? It's like you know fire department wants to move their inspection vehicles to be either hybrid or, or electric. So how do we accommodate that? What do we have to do for charging? You know, um, is and it the grid's trans- not there. No, there's, there's always, you know, the, the grid's going to be, it is what it is at this point in time in terms of you can't snap your fingers and turn everything to be uh, electrical overnight. Uh, but it's looking at how, like if we look at that sector that is, you know, maybe our transportation sector within our own operations, how do we start to electrify that? And it might start out small with, you know, smaller um you know, vehicles that can be electrified and reduce our GHG footprint. It could start moving to the larger class vehicles. And then over time, looking at larger like transportation, like our, our buses and, and things like that, though. We do have one of the greenest bus fleets in, in Canada because uh, we're over. I do know that. Yeah, yeah we're over 50 percent uh, natural gas. And we actually take natural gas from our um, landfill site, scrub it put it back into the system so we have literally a net zero bus because Recycle. it's running on regenerated uh, natural gas produced from from waste uh, and running um, a bus that's net zero running on natural gas because it came from waste byproduct. This has been fascinating. Um, I, I lived in Hamilton for a while. I've seen the city through its transition from a steel mill to something uh, based on knowledge, healthcare, and, and other, you know, greener, more technological things. And we will be watching with interest to see how you manage to bring the city further into the smart city world. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the time. And it's, it's not me. It's the whole city doing it together. But I appreciate it. And there's another episode of the Smart City Podcast. Thanks to Cyrus from the city of Hamilton for showing us the complexities and the promise of the smart city of the near future. If you have any comments, send them to feedback at thesmartcity.blog and check out the website, thesmartcity.blog. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furlane. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant is Andrea Crawford. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time. 